Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast, Pedagogy Geeks. I'm Ryan Tusing. And I'm Arielle Weiss. I'm an Alexander Technique teacher living here just outside of Philadelphia in the United States. And I'm a pianist and piano teacher living here in Virginia. We invite you to join us in exploring the hows and the whys behind what we teach musicians so that we can help promote the integration of wellness and musicianship. We welcome your questions and hope to inspire your curiosity. And we hope to support and encourage re-examining, rediscovering, and bringing embodiment and creativity into our teaching. We are especially pleased to welcome Sarah Niblack as our guest for today's Pedagogy Geeks episode, <laughs> The Prevalence and Pitfalls of Performance Anxiety. Sarah is an active freelance violist based in Paris, France, and the founder of Spark practice. She is a neurodivergent former Division I scholarship rower with several titanium screws and a passion for helping people find their spark. After viola performance and arts administration degrees from CCN, a collection of international wins on the viola and race course, as well as autoimmune ADHD and injury challenges, her depth of experiences in elite sports, top musical training, neuroscience, and mindfulness all came together into Spark Practice, the neurologically aligned intentional practice system for healthy peak performance. Welcome, Sarah. We are so delighted to have you with us for season two of Pedagogy Geeks. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. It's something I've been looking forward to a long, for a long time. I love your podcast. I love these episodes, and I'm so excited to be part of the conversation. <laughs> Well, wonderful. Thank you for being with us. So to jump right into our episode, here's a question on our topic. How prevalent is performance anxiety and how does it impact musicians? Sarah, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, everybody has performance anxiety. Nobody's immune. And performance anxiety is everywhere. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when people say they don't get nervous, when people say that it doesn't affect them, well, they're probably lying to themselves. So I'm going to start pretty strong and say, nobody's immune. We all have it, but we don't all understand it. Mm. I couldn't agree more. I'm going to jump in, Sarah. It's funny. I say the same thing. I say it slightly differently, though, because um, I think it's a completely natural response. It's excitement. And so whether you feel that excitement more as crippling or kind of um, promoting your performance, that's the difference that we get to tweak. But performance anxiety is, is normal excitedness um, towards performance. So the impact of it, however, is what we really want to talk about, right? And so when people say that they're going to avoid performance anxiety, I, I cringe a little bit because I don't think that's the, the accurate or correct or helpful way to go about it. Um, so we don't wanna dampen energy as a performer, but we certainly wanna redirect it. I think of it as you know Aikido. So we're not gonna block it, we're gonna redirect it. And so the impact of that performance anxiety 
well, at its worst can end careers. I'm just going to go for the most devastating consequence. Right? It's true. We've all yeah. seen it. We've all worked with people for whom that's the case. Some people just like dead want to give up. It's too painful. Um, there's a lot of space in between for people who just aren't enjoying performance, right? Their anxiety is preventing their enjoyment. And then of course, if you're not enjoying it, I'd put money on the fact that you're not playing your best music. So this shows up all the time uh, in an audition scenario, right? That what happens to you is that that nervous, excited energy is preventing you from accessing what you just spent all that time practicing, right? So in my mind, those are the broad sweep categories of the impact. But Ryan, I know you must have something to say here. Well, I'm completely fascinated by what you've both mentioned already, and I would agree with it. I really, I guess in my mind, as I've been mulling all of this over a bit, I'm really just curious about the whole term performance anxiety. I think often when we hear the word anxiety, we feel the connotation of that term as being very negative and like some kind of diagnosis that can sound scary. And I think, you know, we have to really temper that with the idea of excitement that you've both, you know, mentioned. And I think when we consider it that way, it's helpful. But I would just extend further to say that you know, given those challenges, I really am curious about what it might be like to, you know, come up with a different term or, an, or other ways of speaking about it that might help people to feel, you know, less like it's just this scary pathology to be avoided, but, you know, just understand that it's just a part of the human experience when we're sharing something that we care about. Mm. I couldn't agree with you more, Ryan. And I feel like, Something that you touched on that's so important is to understand that performance anxiety is sort of a misnomer for an umbrella of different stuff going on, mm. which also means that we've named this symptom of stuff going on under stress as a thing in itself without understanding where it comes from or what to do about it. Mm. I like that. Yeah, I think you're both leading us right into our next question, which is to ask about what are some of the misconceptions about performance anxiety? And we've already started to touch on some of these themes. Ryan, I love your idea about <laughs> renaming performance anxiety, right? And this idea that, you know, it's just some people that get it. And so I think we've already talked about the misconception. And if we just understand that everyone gets some kind of excitement, it's whether or not that excitement is preventing you from doing what you want to do. So people will say, oh, I don't get stage fright. I don't get performance anxiety. They get excitement, but they know what to do with it is what I would say. But what are the other misconceptions, Sarah? You seem to have some things to say here about the science. I want to hear from you. Well, sure. So first of all, we'll, we'll, I'd love to jump back to misconceptions in a minute. But one of some of the basic parts of the science of it are that we have seven major chemicals that make up our sort of weather patterns as a person. So who we are in our character and our sort of composition um, is a place to start, but then our mood and sort of the waves of chemical cocktails that come and go mm -hmm. tend to throw us around a little bit. And, you know, we're doing more research and we're understanding more that when we have these big feelings that come through us, there's actually a sort of a chemical signature as well. So mm -hmm. we've talked about like, um, 
adrenaline junkies and people who love to totally just chill out and want zero stress. I mean, these are two kind of ends of a spectrum, you know, but we're talking about our rest chemicals, which we have the four like pleasure chemicals. What are they? Dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and the other one. Um, <laughs> and then we have our stress chemicals of cortisol, uh, adrenaline or epinephrine and norepinephrine. And these things are kind of the like more urgent uh, systems that throw us around a little bit. So when we have these different surges in our major weather patterns coming through, this is a very high level geeky way to talk about we get big feelings that are natural because we have these chemical surges coming through and we don't, we're not prepared for them and we don't know how to digest them. Mm. So that means that our, you know, normal rest and digest happy, healthy, parasympathetic nervous system, nervous system that's balanced or what I call the neutral gets pushed out of neutral and it's either understimulated or mostly for performers, it's overstimulated. And so we don't necessarily have the tools and these are some of the misconceptions to bring it back to neutral in a way that's healthy and like Ariel was saying, then productive and that excitement that we can use. Mm. You're, this is reminding me of something. So, so uh, as a performer, even not a musician, as a dancer, um, I I started noticing a pattern in myself that on opening night, I would always go too fast. I'd always rush, right? <laughs> That's part of that adrenaline surge, right? <laughs> and so I started telling my you know favorite fans like, come on the second night. <laughs> Because I knew myself, right? That, that, right, that, and that's, I'm not the only one, as it turns out, anecdotally, in speaking, and not just dancers, uh, musicians rush too when they get nervous. Uh, it's very common. And so, like, one strategy I found as a performer, um, I loved your description, right? So, there would be some dancers backstage kind of like lying down with their eyes closed, right? And I'd be looking at them like, wow, I could never go on stage after doing that. That's not what I need, right? So I used to be on stage doing running laps mm -hmm. because that helped slow me down mm -hmm. because I would take that adrenaline and I would redirect it. I would put it into physical activity to use up some of that overflowing flooding, right? <laughs> of adrenaline. And so that's what worked for me, right? Maybe not or the person that wanted to lie down and chill out in the corner. But, but that's what I always am advocating for is, so a misconception I, I think is that there's one way and may I just, I'm just gonna name it. I'm sorry, I just got us to the edge of that pond. Most musicians think the one way to fix performance anxiety is with beta blockers. And they're wrong. Like there's I mean, so many ways. There's so many ways. And, and I'm never, ever going to advocate for someone not to take medication if they find it helpful. It's not my way. If that helps you, great. And you might want to have some more tools in your toolbox. Because if you think that's the only way to help yourself, that's a pretty stuck place. And beta blockers don't help all performers. So we need more tools would be Right. So that's, I just named the biggest mis misconception. Sorry, Ryan, I jumped in there. 
Oh, no, that's that's great. I would say, you know, as I'm considering this, I, I really love the analogy of weather that you use, Sarah. I think that just sort of looking at it that way, I think it helps us to already start to engage our metacognition when we're thinking about it. So instead of us thinking that this is just something that is intrinsically linked to us and our situation and that, oh, we just have this crippling thing and we can't do anything about it. We're able to step back for a second and we're able to observe, oh, this is what's happening to me right now. This is what I'm feeling. Okay. And just like as with weather, we can see clouds come and go. We see them change in the sky. We can see, okay, today it's going to snow. Oh, tomorrow it's going to rain. Oh, we have a hurricane coming. You know, there's so much variety and it's much more interesting. And I would say much less stressful, at least in my experience, if we're able to observe it. And I guess, you know, the only other thing I'd add is that I think, you know, to jump back for just a second to what we were talking about earlier with the idea of performance anxiety having such a negative connotation, I think that the sense of the heightened emotional and, you know, involvement that we can sometimes feel as part of it, as long as it's not overwhelming our nervous system in a negative way, can really help us to you know enjoy the moment and to really express them the music in particular ways because we we may be moved by the people sitting in front of us and we might want to think oh i really want to share something special with them so i think it's this it's a you know like the weather it's a varied thing it's always changing and when we reflect on that and we're able to step outside of it you know where we're not so intrinsically you know bound up by it i think it has a lot of possibilities to to teach us. Mm. So something that I'm hearing that we haven't actually named yet, but I think is really helpful to the conversation is that we're kind of talking about anticipation. Mm. So what that means to me is that, and that's the theme of today's day and 100 days of spark practice, but Ooh. what this means to me is that we tend to throw ourselves into a situation without help, without support, without preparation. Mm. And so it becomes sort of survivor mode and then, you know, getting thrown into the deep end while you're supposed to be performing magic tricks and being like, but hey, I don't know how to swim. Mm. Seems pretty stupid, right? So one thing that anticipation can help us do is say, okay, I want to be able to survive the hurricane. What tools do I need for that? And how can I start practicing them now so that when my brain kicks in and is like, protect, protect, stay alive, lions and tigers and bears, everything is awful, <laughs> that we know that we have these tools, that our digestive system of stress is strong enough to handle these big challenges. But then we also have some urgent care as well. Mm. Sarah, that's beautiful. And, and I kind of want to go back to this misconception and this idea, Ryan, your, your idea about renaming performance anxiety is lively in my imagination. Um, so I, I, I'm going to propose a I'll count here, but what if we call it performance energy or excitement for now? And, and because I think the misconception is that it's a bad thing. And so what I often talk to my students about from an Alexander Technique lens is that uh, we want energy to perform, that it would be actually like really dull and boring and dead if, if we weren't excited 
you know, if I wanted to give you and share something with you and I was really slack in my energy, how would you receive that? <laughs> yes. So, so a certain level of excitement, I think is a very positive thing. So again, it's about how we direct that. And Sarah, what you were just speaking about really brings to mind uh, this, this living in the moment practice that I think Alexander Technique is, is rooted in. And so uh, all performance uh, in one way or another usually does require some kind of anticipation or planning. In other words, you know, actors know the arc and musicians, you need to know where that piece ends, right? Otherwise you're playing notes and no one wants to hear notes, right? We wanna hear musical ideas and phrasing, which means you have to know where you're going, even if you're improvising. I mean, I was also an improviser as well as a choreographer. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes we would just say, okay, we're gonna improvise for 10 minutes. So I didn't know what was gonna happen in those 10 minutes, but I still knew that at 10 minutes we had to finish. I so, love that. Yeah, so this, how do I anticipate, which I, I'm gonna call planning, right? And knowing where I'm going. But if I get ahead of myself and leave a sense of fully of myself in this moment, then that anticipation is something we don't want. That's when we rush, that's when we get off track, when we're not in good uh, collaboration with our co-performers or our audience, yes? And For sure. So how do I plan and know where I'm going, including that preparatory work, which I wanna talk about in a bit, yes? And, and so that we can fully live this moment because those are the performances that give everyone goosebumps. I think that something I'm hearing that I really want to just highlight is that what you're describing, um, the lens, the, the lens through which I hear it sounds like an excellent performance where the performers have what I call their maps all set up. And what it means is that they're able to be free and lucid in the moment knowing that all of their preparation supports them so that they can go from practice brain into performance brain into that creative state where you know they've worked on their muscles they've done their gymnastics mentally as well to be able to step into that stay there and you know have have the the music that they want to share come out and also have that extra little sparkle, extra little connection, the little something, something special that happens yeah. in those magical moments. Yeah. So I'll tell you about maps in a second. But one, another thing that <laughs> I heard about in the conversation was that we're talking about focal lengths and activation. Hmm. So focal lengths, you know, everybody's talking about, you know, what it takes to get to the, you know, in anticipation to get to the end of a piece. Well, we need to know the arc. We need to know what's happening. We need to know where we're going. But we also need to know what's happening in, you know, the next shift, the next harmonic change, the next tempo change. What do we need to do? What's the signature that we have set up to make that transition as well? So it's just something to keep in mind is that we're always operating on a few different focal lengths, which is part of why we're magicians and superheroes. <laughs> I think that any artist is a superhero. I really do believe that. <laughs> the other little part about activation, which I, I think is amazing, is that when we're talking about what we need to best perform, we're touching on our profile of stress. But also, 
we're talking about what we need to be in the best condition and activated to the right level to perform what we're about to play. Because to be activated to a level for Don Juan maybe is not going to be helpful for, you know, the viola excerpt in Shasti 5 where, you know, it's just like glacial nothingness. <laughs> you walk into that and you're going to be a shake fest 5,000 because you've set yourself up for a different mm. activation mm. whereas if you walk into dawn one you're like oh, it's just let's take a nap that's not going to be great either we want to have that peps we mm. want to have that energy as well so I, I feel like a lot of what we're talking about is preparing ourselves to be able to channel that energy as we're going back to what everybody's saying from the very beginning channeling that energy in a way that comes through us openly you know we're not blocking it mm -hmm. and channeling it in a way to make the music that we want to make mm. it's it's almost the antithesis of beta blockers right the word block right so we're saying unblock we're saying let that energy flow in a direction we want true but beta beta blockers help us channel so i feel like in part of getting water from glaciers to the ocean it would be really hard if it were just flat go little water be free <laughs> uh okay great thanks i'm just gonna sit nice. here and you know make mosquitoes um that's not particularly helpful either sometimes however what i think is amazing is that part of the research that i've been doing with nervous system neutral is that we all experience stress and therefore performance anxiety in different ways, which means that we all have different antidotes. And for example, if we are more in our body first, we need to get that extra energy out. And if we're more in our mind first, we need to ground first into our body. And so there are some of these like magic tricks that we're learning as the research comes out to be able to sort, you know, support that conversation with ourselves and really get ourselves into a place where we're able to build our nervous system to be able to channel that energy productively. Ryan, what do you think? I, I'm just sitting here reflecting on all of these wonderful things that you've both been sharing. And I'm just <laughs> fascinated by a lot of the different uh, ideas. I would say what, what I keep coming back to um, is this idea that, you know, thinking of all of this as it's kind of all about the weather and really understanding that when we're playing a piece or we're preparing to play a piece, what we're really seeking is a lot of, you know, having a wide landscape as we're looking at a piece of music and we're looking at ourselves we're we're, attun we're attuning to lots of things simultaneously so i'd say there's a sense in which we're thinking about okay the emotional content of the piece what is this music saying what are the technical demands what do i have to do here what is it trying to express how do i experience that in my body you know and how do i want to share that with the audience you know and feeling all of these things and just kind of being aware of them simultaneously I think that that tool of attunement and awareness to the situation and to ourselves is a really great place to start that 
I would say Alexander's technique speaks so beautifully to, which is the sense of presence, the sense of being somewhere. And really, when we are able to achieve that in a given moment, it we're not, again, it relates to metacognition also. So we're not stuck in ourselves. We're able to just kind of, you know, be there and we're able to observe. And through that process of observation, we're then able to begin to consider what strategies we can use to then move effectively toward that beautiful performance or toward helping our students achieve a beautiful performance. Mm. Beautiful, Ryan. Um, we're kind of on the cusp of talking strategies, but I want to pause us for a moment. And I want to add in this little question about the factors that contribute to exacerbate performance, excitement, or energy, or anxiety. <laughs> so um, before we get into like, how do we deal with it? I, I'm curious to just identify and name what you think those factors are that contribute. Um, Ryan, do you want to go first this time? Sure. I would say some of the factors that contribute, and one of the biggest ones, at least in my experience, is that so often we couple our success or failure in our performance to our identity in a way that is neither helpful or productive. And I have found it personally, you know, sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. But in the past, I, I had a really difficult time with this, and I didn't even realize it was happening to me. But once I was able to see that it was so freeing, because I realized, oh, I am not how I perform. I, that is not, you know, who I am as a human being and as a person. And I think when we're able to see that, it already begins to help, you know, other things I'd say that exacerbate the problem are just a lack of self-awareness, a lack of awareness of what we're trying to do. Because, you know, if we're not aware, you know, kind of as I was alluding to earlier about my own experience, you know, it can really make things challenging for us. Because if we're not aware, we're going to be very ill-equipped to make the kinds of changes and to put in the kinds of things we need to grow well. How about for you, Sarah? I, I resonate so completely with everything that you're saying, Ryan. And for me, a lot of that comes back to we're preparing for ourselves for the wrong thing. Mm. If we mm. want to get on stage and share something, we need to prepare ourselves for that experience, which means that we're not mm -hmm. just learning how to play something, but we're learning how to play it in performance, which means that we're combining a bunch of different skills together. And I really believe that, like you said, we are ill-equipped and that this is something that goes beyond what a lot of very, very high level schools, training institutions and whatever are addressing. However, knowing that we have this weather, you know, these weather systems, clouds are, you know, cortisol and rain is in <laughs> neuropinephrine and and thunder is adrenaline you know whatever but we also have sunshine which is serotonin and you know like a warm beach is endorphins the painkiller chemical you know like all of these different things happen and all of these different things happen in different ways so that when we start to incorporate into our preparation, the mental game, 
our developing art our artistic voice, understanding the physical elements that go into this, and also the right kind of support that we need in the moment, then we're preparing ourselves for the activity that we actually want to do, as opposed mm. to playing everything a mm. million times in our practice room. Mm. And in my case, swearing a lot. Amen <laughs> to that. <laughs> I um as a young dancer in college. I kind of had this realization that um, I was spending a great deal of time training in, in dance studios, you know, diligently working on my plies and my tendus and, and learning choreography and executing choreography. And all of a sudden, for some reason, I was like, wait a minute, never once in a dance class do we ever talk about performance. Not a once. I, I was in dance studios and taking dance classes um, for decades. <laughs> yeah. Never once did anyone ever talk. Oh, that's not true. I, I'm going to amend. I just thought of one instance. So when I was quite young, taking classical ballet classes, at the end of class, we did reverence, which is bows. And during the bows, we would bow to the uppermost tier, and then we would bow to the middle tier, and then we would bow to the front row. So in the bowing, we would acknowledge audience, but never while we were dancing. And so as a young dancer in my undergraduate degree, I decided I wanted to learn about performance because as a choreographer, I wanted a language to talk to my dancers about what I was after in the performance. So I went, I wanted to take directing, but you had to take acting first. So I talked my way into an acting class. <laughs> And I took a couple of years of acting <laughs> um, because I wanted to know what they knew. And boy, actors talk about performance. They have a language, they have a container, they have a way to assess that co connectivity to performers that you're performing with as well as an audience. And I was like, oh yeah, this is what I was looking for. So musicians, you're all trying to pretend there isn't an audience there. And when you audition, there's a screen there, which really helps you pretend there's people not there. And so um, I think one of the biggest con contributors uh, is, is very much what Sarah, you were talking about, that we don't prepare to perform. We prepare to for perfection. And I think perfectionism is one of the biggest contributors. And that when you're trying to be perfect, who are you performing for? A composer that might very well be dead, right? Um, I'd much rather perform for a, an audience and whether that audience is on the other end of a microphone as it is today, right? Or the other side of a Zoom screen, yes? It doesn't matter if they're in the room with me. My purpose is to share and performing and performance is a generous act. It's an act of generosity. And if you're being perfectionistic, there's no generosity in there to yourself or to anyone else. So we'll, I'm sure this will come up again with strategies, but I would put perfectionism at the, the head of the class for what um, aids and abets. I'd like to propose um, an idea about what shows up on stage with us. Mm. And it's what I call our maps. Okay. okay. And I feel like the way that we welcome our weather 
Mm. And the way that we get shame about our weather Mm. and the way that we feel good about our weather Mm. shows up in our maps. And our maps, it's an acronym because I'm cheesy and I love acronyms. It's our mental game, which includes our performance skills and our digestive system of stress as we understand it right now. Um, and nervous system regulation and stuff like that. A is our artistic voice, Mm -hmm. that we have an opinion and a responsibility to our audience to tell a compelling story and to, you know, bring that to life. P is our physicality. And so Mm -hmm. this is also our general conditioning, as well as our instrument and repertoire specific training. And S is our support. Now, this could be family, this could be our teachers, this could be our Alexander Technique teacher, which we all need. Uh, This could be, you know, our hypnotherapist, a turtle, you know, our support systems are generally pretty varied. I don't have a turtle, but that seems cool. (laughs) So what I mean by this is that when we show up on stage, our mental game tends to be kind of nowhere which means that we show up on stage with a quarter of our preparation missing. Mm. Our artistic voice. In conservatory, a lot of times, like even at really high levels, teachers are still like my way or the highway. Mm. It's gotta sound like this. When do we learn to trust ourselves and trust our voice Mm. and make our choices and do our research to propose that and have that validated and cultivated all along the path to performance and all along our development as an artist. So now we're showing up on stage with half of our skills gone. Mm. Then we have our physicality. So this is not only just our general technique, but it's how our body works. Are we a system that is functional? (laughs) Are we just surviving performances from a physical aspect? Or are we nourishing ourselves? Are we getting sleep? Are we balanced? Are, do we know how it works? As well as, you know, I don't know how to play the tuba. That would be important. But I do try to sleep well. <laughs> so, you know, like physicality has a lot of different elements, right? <laughs> but then the support thing I think is so interesting because this is also one of the pitfalls and factors that contribute to the exacerbation of our misinterpretation and therefore injury from Mm. performance anxiety which is that a lot of teachers make it survivor (laughs) rather Mm. than yay you get to share you're awesome let's go do this thing Mm. and then have also the space to evaluate and be like okay this was cool this kind of sucked i'm all about striving for excellence but we need to do it in a way that's healthy Mm -hmm. we need to do it in a way that acknowledges the person and gives them the tools that they need to self-regulate express Mm -hmm. themselves artistically, be physically ready and have the support that they need that's actually helping them move forward. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And I just, I wanna just highlight something that really is standing out to me in this is the idea that we have to remember that performance and practice while related and intrinsically linked together are indeed separate activities in a sense. So I think when we keep that in our minds, again, it helps us to think about how we can prepare for both successfully. 
So mm. true. And to have this idea of, okay, what's practice brain? What's performance brain? And, you know, work on these muscles because they really are just that. To spend time, okay, productively, I'm in practice brain. This means that I'm I'm the curious investigator. Do I like this? Do I not like this? How could this be more beautiful? What's the sound here? What's the balance point here? Where am I going to lean in? Where am I going to lean out? All of these different questions are wonderful and totally legitimate. Then we also need to be able to pass into performance brain, which is, and how can I make this like little tree even more beautiful? And now we're going to the cave of desolation. How do I make them feel desolation? How do I make the sunshine again? after all of that for the first time and they know what it feels like to have warmth after winter you know all of these different skills are very important to develop and also we need to cut the junk the head junk that comes in of our system saying i want to protect you therefore i'm going to throw shrapnel at you so you don't put yourself in danger and this happens, and this is where we're talking about nervous system regulation and performance skills and centering and stuff like that, is that we need to be able to know where that line is of productive practice and performance. And performance doesn't have any criticism in it because we can't criticize and create at the same time, right? Neurologically, we cannot. We are very cool, very advanced bags of a bunch of stuff with a soul but we cannot criticize and create at the same time <laughs> so even before yeah. then when we start to have that head junk we need to remember our absolute value as a person is awesome i am worth just as much as ryan i'm worth just as much as ariel i'm just worth just as much as the person listening to this whether they're five years old and make squeaks or are one of the most acknowledged professors in the world our value as a person doesn't change. And this is something that Ryan, you touched on earlier, regardless of the result of our performance, our value as a person doesn't change. From there, we can say, okay, this was cool. This made me feel a certain way or not. Let's tweak it. Let's work it out. Let's do the thing. Yes. You're speaking about so many important things and that idea of when demand goes up to increase support is one of my basic foundational rules, right? Demand, stress goes up, support needs to come up. And just like you, Sarah, I think of it as comprehensively, holistically, systemically as possible. I'm a brown rice and greens girl. That's my Popeye meal. And when I get stressed out, that's what I eat, right? That's some of my support system. I also watch stupid TV to turn my brain off sometimes. And I count that as support as well, because sometimes I need to do that, right? And so uh, these ideas about practice and performance, right? I, I say you can't, uh, performance isn't the time to check. Like, no, aim go, <laughs> right? <laughs> like. Yeah aim go that's that's what we're here to do and that that generous act so i would say too that um that i hear what you're saying ryan and and i know there's scientific evidence right that that practice brain and performance brain are separate things but but i do think that part of practice is to create the bridge and so if i can dip us into strategies if i can move us ahead a little bit um, I've stolen something from a, a very esteemed colleague, Kathy Madden, who works uh, almost exclusively with actors. 
and she's a very talented Alexander teacher and director. And Kathy said this in a workshop years ago, and I stole it because you only should steal the best. So Kathy said that actors train in a studio, right? And then they get on stage and they go, oh, there's an audience. <laughs> Surprise. So that's like me in my dance studio going, wait a minute, I'm dancing to a mirror all day long, but that's not who I want to dance for. I want to dance for an audience, right? So Kathy suggests this. She says, invite your future audience to be with you in the practice room so that you can be with your audience on stage. So I literally ask my Curtis students to imagine someone beloved at the other end of the room. Sometimes they suggest they carry photographs of people they really trust and love and put the pictures around the room. One time in a Zoom lesson, I had my student play to her beloved panda, a huge stuffed panda bear. I don't care how you do it. Sometimes I ask people to play for their neighbors across the street. It doesn't matter. You can play for people um, in in places in the world that could use our music and love right now. Yes. Uh, however you want to get that done, but that I'm so fascinated that musicians primarily train by themselves in a practice room and they primarily play with other people and often a conductor. That's very interesting to me as a dancer because dancers primarily train in groups. Hmm. So yeah, you need to use your imagination would be my platform to bring those people into the room with you so that you're not surprised that your purpose isn't to play for accuracy, right? That's the wrong goal, people. The accuracy is not unimportant. I am not saying it's unimportant to be accurate. I'm saying that's not the end game. That's the wrong end game. The goal is to share the music. And the more accurately you play it sometimes, the more you have to say about the music, right? <laughs> but to play accurately is playing notes. I don't care. We want yeah. the total package player, which means right. that sometimes the accuracy may be down a little bit, but when the rest is there, you still get the full impact. And most of the time when you ask musicians, which I do all the time, what their favorite performances were of their own or someone else's, I asked them flat out, was it the most accurate? And they never say yes. That's not the thing that needs, it's again, it's not that it's unimportant, but as Sarah, as you so beautifully uh, point out, it's not the only ingredient and it's the weave and the blending of those ingredients that really gives us those, um, those magical, sparky, goosebumpy performances that we all keep going back for more <laughs> it's true and I think one thing just to put a name on another thing that we we're talking about is that when we practice for performance because great practices start in the practice or great performances start in the practice room right so when we practice for performance we're bringing those elements together all the way through our phases of preparation therefore but when we are intentionally bringing these things together 
and mixing these ingredients in their special magic sauce. And we're able to intentionally bring that performance in, in ways that help build our nervous system, that help us build our competency to hold bigger and bigger amounts of stress and bigger challenges. Again, we're building, not breaking, right? When we do that intentionally, then when we get to the big day, we feel ready to share that whole performance and we feel ready as that total package player more so than we ever have before, which means that we can go out there and we can just make some music and connect. Ryan, I'm so curious how you talk to your young students about performance. Do your, do your students do recitals? And do you talk to them about that bridge to performing? You know, it's it's a topic that I, I think about frequently. I would say I do something that I've not seen many of my colleagues do very often, which is instead of, you know, building in, you know, frequent recitals for young children, here's the thing, I have nothing against them sharing music, I'm all about that. But I feel like sometimes, especially for young students or new students, be they adults or young children or whatever, I think there can be an overemphasis on you have to have a performance ready now. And I think that that can go ahead and that can start performance anxiety like you're you're sowing seeds of this they're gonna be like <laughs> you know like this this <laughs> evil garden of doom is blossoming and you don't want that newsflash don't do it so Monsters. what i yeah it's not good so so what i like to do instead is i like to from the very first lesson i have them improvising pentatonic thanks on black keys and we already from the first lesson we're talking about sharing music we're talking mm. about improvisation mm. we're talking about that sort of thing so then what happens i'm all for them performing and i'm all for them sharing music but mm. for me I, and this is this is a little crazy and extreme and i know it could be construed as merely a semantic game but i find it helpful i do not think of performance as performance i think of it as sharing you are sharing something beautiful that you love that you're enjoying with another person mm. so when i'm thinking about that with my very young students we i don't say oh this is when i give them a piece i don't say oh this is your recital piece better learn it better be good <laughs> don't do that at all what happens is we gradually learn a repertoire of pieces that they like that they have a connection to that they're having fun with and that they are playing very well and they're successful with once they have established that and i have them play them for their friends i have them play them for their family and other people you know and just share them then once we've gotten to that point i'm like you know what well, let's have a recital and here's the thing recitals in my studio are not mandatory nobody is conscripted to be there or or it's not going to be good never 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 because it's about sharing and if you don't have something that you're feeling ready to share or that you, that's not where you are at the moment that is okay no shame in that no harm in that it's completely fine mm. so i really encourage my students then once they have something ready to share then to share it and also with young students this is also probably crazy I have them play several pieces. Mm. 
and I like to do multiple sharings of the music. So with the same pieces. So, you know, we might visit, you know, some retirement community where people love to see these young children and they get to share their music with them. And then we might do it in another venue or whatever, but mm -hmm. just that experience from the beginning of teaching them that it's about sharing and it's about doing it when you feel prepared and when it truly is prepared and it being a collaboration between you and the teacher to get it to that point and then you get to share it with the audience i think thinking about all of those things and also understanding from the very beginning that performances are you know, there are some times when we only have the opportunity as professional musicians to perform something once at a given time. However, for young children, I like to make it very clear that guess what? You can play it again tomorrow. Even if it's not at that same venue for those same people, guess what? You can play it again tomorrow. And if nobody else enjoys it, you can enjoy it. And, and that sense of building that in, I think, really helps mm. to start shaping their, their understanding of all of this. Mm. I love that. getting a very active round of applause, I think, from both Sarah and I'm giving you a happy dance right now for people that can't see us. Same, same. Beautiful. It's so true. And you know, if I were to translate that in sort of the spark practice language, what I'm hearing is that you're giving them an intention and the intention is sharing and connection. And then you're helping them build confidence. And confidence is two things. It's not that hard, people. Confidence is stacking wins tiny little wins and expanding your nervous system to hold bigger things. So what you're doing, you know, on paper is you're saying, here's your intention. This is what we're going for. And here we're going to have these tiny little experiences of sharing and then bigger and bigger as they go. So that at a certain point, your nervous system can hold sharing in this other way as well. Knocking it out of the park, man. I don't even know what to say. I know. I'm Thank thinking you. <laughs> your students are so lucky to have you. And I don't, uh, crazy, uh, only in your willingness to innovate and support your students. So crazy only in a good way from my perspective. So I applaud you. And, and, um, I think that's wonderful. I, as a modern dancer and choreographer, I would commonly spend eight to 12 months creating and rehearsing a piece and then perform it once or twice. That's rough. And we That's don't, so sad. Um, it's very sad and very challenging. And I didn't have an opportunity to repeat repertoire the way classical musician would. And it wasn't until I started doing uh, exclusively solo work and doing more touring that I got to actually perform my own repertoire over and over again. And it completely altered my life as a performer and completely altered my experience of what we would call performance anxiety or performance energy or excitement <laughs> because I got used to performing more. It stopped being this sacred once a year thing, right? And it started to become more, that was my a job. Habit. It was a habit. And then I came up with a very particular strategy for myself. And it's something that I use with my students, which is um, no, no uh, critiquing as I was, no critiquing as I perform. But after a performance, the, the discipline, people, the discipline is to always find one thing you liked first. Oh, my gosh, yes. And especially for me watching videos of myself. Woo! Yes. So I still use this strategy. 
It's like, okay, I know there's a hundred things that pop out that I think I need to fix. But before I can do that, I must articulate one thing. And I literally used to say to myself, I didn't fall down <laughs> or I didn't forget the choreography or I'm still alive. Like some days, <laughs> maybe it's hard to find the thing that you think you, <laughs> but one way you succeeded, you must articulate one thing that went well. Yeah. Always something that went well. Right. And so if I start from a place of wanting to promote what I already know how to do, that's a much easier place to shift into what I'd like to tweak. And I really want to point out this difference between excellence and perfection. When we stop seeking excellence, we should stop performing. Like then you have nothing to say. So I don't want to thwart my students' uh, quest for excellence. That's called artistry, people. <laughs> yes, but excellence isn't always mean perfect, right? And and so it might, right? But it might be something completely new happens in that performance. And that's what we really want. We want the magic of that moment to show up. And, and if we keep uh, performing out of our fear-driven impulses, it's not going to happen. And so how do we set up our students, right? How do we help them strategize? Well, we've talked about some strategies in a practice room. I know as a choreographer, when I was um, choreographing group works, the last thing I would say to my dancers before they went on stage is don't forget to have fun. Like that's what I wanted them going on stage. Like go enjoy this. You've just worked really, really hard for months and months. Now's your moment to enjoy it. Like that's what I wanted them to bring on stage with them. I have a few others up my sleeve, but I wanna hear from, from you guys first about uh, what, what do you suggest to your collaborators or to your students? Um, well, it, it, what you just said made me think of uh, when I toured with a rock band in Germany, what we would say to each other right before going on stage was aim for pleasure. So it's kind of funny way to say what you just said, but I think that it totally is uh, in line and aligned with what Ryan was saying about giving an intention and giving an intention that leans toward that like supportive, positive pleasureful, more fun weather system. We want mm -hmm. sunny skies. Let's point our boat that way. <laughs> Makes a lot more sense than I want to be perfect. Let's go to the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> <laughs> Are there ways, Sarah, practically that you help people point towards that sunny weather? Yes. Or is that just the idea? Can you um, share? Some part of tips. part of my superpower is breaking these things down into like very small chunks. Um, and so the first one to start with is what is the intention? And the intention is how do you want to feel? So it's not your object. It's not an objective of, oh, I want to win this competition or I want these people to like me or I want this person to not like play with their keys behind the curtain. Mm. It's how do you want to feel on stage during that performance? And so even having that place where we're going to point our boat and go that direction, it could be, I want to feel open. I want to feel singing in all of the high stuff. I want to feel connected to the audience. I want to feel like I'm sharing. I want to feel like I saw all of the little trees and all of the story that I was saying, you know, as I was playing. Having that intention is a great place to start. 
in the practice room. Part of what helps us get there is understand what phase we're in of performance preparation so we have the right benchmarks of excellence. Because having excellence, like achieving excellence, it means different things at different times. Mm. Like Ryan was saying, let me give you this piece. This piece. Now play it perfectly. <laughs> Is not a great benchmark of excellence, right? <laughs> so we want to make sure that they can have that achievement that is not only results-based. And in doing that, we need to reframe the conversation and say, okay, so what's the process? What's excellence in the process? And how do you build that feeling? So that when you get to that day on stage, that your, your intention of how you wanna feel is built in to your performance, is built into what you do. That's a good place to start. So as we've been considering these things, what are some very practical strategies that our listeners can begin to explore in their own practice, in their own studios, as they're hearing all of these great ideas and they're thinking, okay, these things are sound fantastic, but how do I actually do something with it? So what, what might we tell them? Yeah, I've got a couple go-to strategies that I want to make sure I sneak in here. And... Um... The first I would say is to ground yourself in your own sense of touch. Because a lot of times when people are feeling uh, the anxiousness of performance energy, uh, they look like they're getting swept away. They get kind of top heavy and they get very uprooted. And so to physically ask, what am I touching? Not too many people are mystified by that they can feel their feet are hopefully touching the floor. And if they're not, I recommend getting them so they are. <laughs> feet flat on the floor, seat in the chair, maybe your back is touching the chair, maybe not. Maybe your arms are touching your legs or your sides. And to just ground yourself in, I know what I'm touching. I know what I'm touching. From there, I ask my students, to see to the back of the hall or the back of the studio. If you're on stage, you may not be able to do that if there's a lot of stage lighting in your eyes, but to imagine looking to the back of the hall. Because I happen to notice that with remarkable consistency, when people are either experiencing performance excitement that's verging into anxiety, or when they describe their experiences of performance anxiety, almost all of the time, I notice that people visually start looking inwards and glaze over and do not see what's in front of them. So a very practical, simple solution after you found what you're touching is to look and see what you see, to actually see colors and shapes and movement peripherally and as far away from you as you can. And my third suggestion is gonna be about breath. Uh, and I'm gonna, would like to share my kind of favorite go-to strategies for that, but I have a funny feeling all three of us might have uh, breath suggestions. So I'm gonna put a pin in my breath suggestion. Sneak peek, we're gonna be talking about breath. But mm -hmm. part of it is that I completely agree that when we start to have these weather systems that are throwing us around a little bit and we're not totally sure what to do, 
anchoring is really important, making sure that our, our little boat, our little house, our, you know, Auntie M doesn't fly away, right? And so instead of feeling really small and a really big feeling, we need to bring that back in, acknowledge it, say thank you, weather patterns, and then learn how to feel big, which is what that look at the back of the hall is, ground, feel our roots in the floor. That's absolutely the image that it brings to me. Mm. And then start to listen to what our little light on the inside says. The first one is what I call the inner plant. And this is not something that we can do when we are in urgent care. Because remember, we have our digestive system of stress that we've built up over time. And then we also have urgent care when stuff goes nuts, because it does, mm. right? This is a digestive system of stress uh, strategy. But what this is, if you'll join me in it, is to close your eyes. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. And imagine a little plant at the innermost part of your belly. It could be a flower, a tree, a shrubbery, a little sprout. And we're going to ask it two questions. The first is, hey, buddy, how's it going? And when we have a little bit of a response, and if we don't have a response, that's okay, it'll come. The second question is, how can I support you? What do you need from me today? Go ahead and come back to the room. This is something that we can practice starting today that is not only about practicing for performance, but it helps us build our relationship with that really innermost part of us so that when there is a lot of weather happening, we can always come back to that and our little plant be, might be like, there's a lot of wind. <laughs> also, probably water. <laughs> you know, it could be very simple. But this connection, I think, is really important. The other one is based on whether we're mostly in the head or mostly in our body. Mm. Um, fun fact, when I was a rower, I trained myself to be super calm before rowing events. And then as soon as the gun went off, to have my adrenaline hit. Mm. that's very helpful in rowing it is not very helpful in music <laughs> <laughs> so i had to do a lot of rewiring around mm. that mm. And, but it helped me learn also that we tend to start in the mind or start in the body mm. and there's a whole like there's more about that but when we start in the mind what we really need to do is come back to that body mm. and that's where you know, what are we touching in the hand is very helpful. That Those grounding exercises to pull light up into your foot and send it around your body and then send it back into the floor. Mm -hmm. If you're in the body first, that's where shaking things out and the physiological side are very helpful. Mm. And the physiological side, I kind of almost don't even consider a breathing technique. I think it's urgent care <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> and so that's when we breathe in and at the end, and then we let it out. And we breathe out longer than we breathe in. So those mm -hmm. are my developing your nervous system of, or digestive system of stress and my favorite urgent care strategy. Ryan, I'm so curious. One thing that we've kind of touched on lightly, but I think is 
it's very practical but very relevant and that is never underestimate your preparation period that's the first thing and which obviously we could go on about that for a while but i'll just leave it at that for now the the other thing that i would say is if we're thinking about you know you know our digestive system and everything you know being at a nice place of neutrality or equilibrium one thing that i find really helpful and i actually was reading about a little bit last evening is the idea that sometimes singing before we do something is a great way to help everything feel settled so I'm certainly not a trained singer and I'm not performing as a singer. So that's good news to everyone listening, I assure you. However, I find that if I'm going to be playing a piece and it has a gorgeous melody, I might just be kind of singing it to myself or like I might be vocalizing a little bit before I'm doing it. And I find that that is a good way to feel in the body also because you're tuning into okay, how do things feel today? Where's my resonance at? Those various things that just, I think, Tunison, and also, I think at a fundamental level, it's the closest that as human beings, we can really connect with the music because the music is coming from us. We are our instrument. And I think that sense of connection reminds us in a very tangible, practical way that the music is inside. And that the music, whether we're playing it on an instrument or whether we are performing as a singer, that the music is coming from us and that it's something special to share. Well, I hate to cut this conversation. I'm feeling like we definitely are going to need a part two, by the way, because there's so many topics we we just didn't get a chance to talk about. But in the spirit of wanting to keep our podcast at a reasonable length, I'm going to invite us to come in for a landing with a closing uh, experiential offering of ways that you either center yourself uh, for performance or ways that you might teach your students. We had talked about uh, breath practices. Sarah, do you want to start us? With I guess we could call it an aloha breath because it's perfect for saying hello and goodbye. Hmm. And it's what I call the four six. So just a little bit technically, when we breathe out longer than we breathe in, we're activating our rest and digest parasympathetic nervous system, which helps bring us back to center and then lets us activate to the level that we need for what we're about to do. Mm. But let's do it together. Breathe in for four. And out for six. Three, four, five, six. Now breathe in for four and let your bottom of your tummy just ploof out. Three, four, and then out for six. Two, four, five, six. And now the last one, we're gonna breathe in for four with the ploof. <gasps> Two, three, four. And now as we breathe out for six, we add a little wiggle, wiggle. Get your arms involved, wiggle your butt a little bit and smile. It's been a really good day. <laughs> that was fun. I like the wiggle wiggle. <laughs> I'd like to end with appreciating three-dimensional breath, appreciating our three-dimensional volume as human beings. And so as you take in the next breath, in addition to your belly puffing forward, um, our ribs uh, go backwards, right? So that we swing forward and back as we breathe in.
and we gather back in towards the center on an exhale. So just enjoying the front surface of your body, moving away from the back surface of the body and the inhale, as well as the back surface of your body swinging away from the front surface of your body. Just enjoying that gentle wave. It's nothing you have to make happen. It's something you get to notice and enjoy. And then again, sides that feels of our so bodies. Good. Yeah, doesn't it? I feel yeah. like we we tend to pump out our front at the expense of our back. And so just this cooperative swinging away from each other. And then Sarah's getting a nice release of a yawn, which is always oh, a good sign. Always a good totally. sign. <laughs> and we can let the sides of our bodies swing away from each other on that inhale. Again, it's not something you have to make happen. It's something you just get to enjoy, that gentle wave of motion. And then lastly, there's so much, I work with a lot of wind players and they get a little obsessive about breathing low. And I'm using air quotes to say breathing low because there's no air low people, uh, but there is plenty of movement and support. Yes. And again, it's nothing you have to make happen. And when singers and wind players try to try to breathe low, they strain. And I'm just going to name that. And so I want you to let your hands come together, one palm, uh, uh, the back of one hand resting in the palm of the other. And if you let your hands fall down near the bottom of your torso, near your pelvic floor, your pelvic floor is a floor, a muscular floor. And on an inhale, as your respiratory diaphragm uh, comes down, it displaces your viscera, your guts, and so mostly we think about our belly puffing forward, which is absolutely accurate and something we want to allow to have happen. And your diaphragm does not push forward. Your diaphragm pushes down. So your guts don't go only forward. Your guts actually go down and out. So with your hands cradled near your pelvic floor, can you actually imagine allowing your pelvic floor to catch your guts on an inhale? Your pelvic floor releases downwards on an inhale. And then if you hiss, you'll feel that pelvic floor spring back up from that resistance you create with the hiss. So on an inhale through your nose, allow your pelvic floor to release and catch your guts and feel that weight into your feet and then hiss. Feel your sit bones sending your head upwards and feel that raising of that pelvic floor. I know it's kind of fun. This is the one I use when I'm feeling uh, like I'm going to get swept away and feeling a little anxious. I will do a couple of my pelvic floor catching breaths to calm myself down <laughs> or redirect my excitement into an energy that's useful. <laughs> oh my goodness. There's so much more to cover, isn't there? It's all good stuff, though. Having this kind of conversation and bringing this quality of intention about what's actually happening in our bodies and minds and, you know, a little bit larger than that, I think is so fundamental to the conversation about what is music and what is what are we doing this for? And then how are we best equipping ourselves to do it? And I think it's such a privilege to be here, but it's such an important activity and it's such important work that you both are bringing forward into the world. Well, we certainly appreciate so much you yes. being here today, Sarah. It was definitely a, the perfect topic to bring you in on. Yes. 
Thank you so much for joining us today and exploring how we think about teaching and learning and performing. We'd love to hear your experiences and questions about how embodiment and mindset impacts your music making. Send us your feedback and any questions you have, ideas for future episodes to pedagogygeeks at gmail.com. You can find out more about Sarah's work with Spark Practice at www.sparkpractice.com. And you can find out more about Alexander Technique for Musicians on my new website page. It's at atphila.com forward slash Alexander Technique for Musicians.